You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Katen Sheff, Medical Director of the Lafayette Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Lafayette, Indiana. More than 20 million Americans have asthma, yet each may have a unique clinical phenotype. How can biomarkers clinically improve the management of asthma in various asthma phenotypes? Joining us to discuss clinical phenotypes in asthma, the importance of biomarkers, is Dr. William Calhoun, the Seeley and Smith Distinguished Chair of Internal Medicine and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Calhoun. Thank you very much, Dr. Sheth. Well, what are biomarkers? Biomarkers are measurements that can be made in an individual relatively non-invasively, which give us information about an outcome that we're really more interested in knowing. So, for example, a serum cholesterol can be a biomarker for an increased risk of stroke or cardiac disease. The increased cholesterol in and of itself doesn't necessarily cause the stroke immediately. It's simply, it's a biomarker. It's a measurement that easily can be made that predicts some other important clinical consequence. What are phenotypes then? Phenotypes are distinct subsets of a particular disease. And when we're talking about asthma, for example, asthma is a syndromic disease. It's characterized by obstructive airways disease, by airway hyperresponsiveness, and by airway inflammation. But under that broad umbrella lie a dozen or more different phenotypes of asthma. For example, in asthma, we might have exercise-induced asthma, or we would have allergic asthma, or we can have asthma related to viral infections. We can have asthma related to menses, and that's just a few of the phenotypes. So there are a number of phenotypes, a number of discernible categories of disease that likely have different pathogenic mechanisms and also may well respond differently to therapy. And that's really, from a clinician standpoint, what's important to us. Is that really the reason or the crux of why it's important to recognize these phenotypes? Or why should we care about what the phenotypes are for asthma? Well, firstly, and most importantly, the phenotype may well associate with therapeutic responsiveness. For example, the severe asthma phenotype is associated with a blunted or even absent response to inhaled corticosteroids. The smoking asthmatic phenotype is another group which has a blunted responsiveness to inhaled corticosteroids. But beyond that, we may need to understand these phenotypes because they are predictive of certain pathologic processes that we can intervene, or they may be associated with an adverse trajectory, that is the population of asthma that has frequent exacerbations and an accelerated loss of lung function. So phenotypes simply help us as physicians, as clinicians, to recognize subsets of variability within a broader disease category that may have important clinical consequences. Coming back to the biomarkers, which ones are being evaluated for asthma? Well, a number of them have been evaluated. Probably most interesting right now is the fraction of exhaled nitric oxide in exhaled breath. There is an FDA-approved instrument for measuring exhaled nitric oxide. So we can do exhaled nitric oxide measurements in our clinic, get a number, and interpret that number to help us manage patients. In addition to that, 
induced sputum has been used. Induced sputum is probably the most accurate biomarker we have. But the inconvenience and the difficulty in obtaining good induced sputum and in having it measured and analyzed properly really precludes its use in clinical medicine. Bronchoalveolar lavage has been used and exhaled breath condensates have been used, but neither of those in 2008 are really up to par as a useful biomarker. So exhaled nitric oxide is probably the best biomarker we've got right now, and it can be used, at least in some cases, as an index of airway inflammation and as a tool for assessing compliance with inhaled corticosteroid therapy. Do you think it's practical to use these in addition to some of the other things that we do to measure asthma, such as lung function? The question is a good one, Caden. The question of whether the biomarker adds value is an important one. There are some data that suggest that adding exhaled nitric oxide measurements to standard clinical measurements does improve asthma outcomes or allows asthma outcomes to be maintained at a lower dose of an inhaled steroid. As you know, we're part of the NIH-funded Asthma Clinical Research Network, and one of our current trials in the ACRN is specifically designed to evaluate the added benefit of measuring exhaled nitric oxide in the ongoing management of patients with mild to moderate asthma. So in the next 18 to 24 months, we should have definitive information on the added value that nitric oxide does or does not give in the management of asthma. As we talk about measuring exhaled nitric oxide, certainly some recent studies have suggested that maybe it doesn't add anything. I know you're talking about some studies that you're doing with the Clinical Research Network that we don't have that data yet. Are we going to get an answer one way or another, or are these different patient populations, and are we back to these phenotypes that we don't know what we're studying? My guess is that, as you're intimating, there will be some patients for whom the ongoing measurement of exhaled nitric oxide will be important. And for others it may not be particularly helpful. What we need to do is to identify that subset of patients, that phenotype of patients, for whom the ongoing or periodic measurement of exhaled nitric oxide actually has added benefit. In some patients, the absence of an inhaled corticosteroid dose within the past couple of weeks is associated with a dramatic rise in exhaled nitric oxide. So if your patient comes in and they have very high nitric oxide, you can sit down and have the conversation with them. Are you really taking your inhaled steroids? Are you taking it as I prescribed? Are you getting it in every day? Are you getting it twice a day? You can have that conversation with them on the basis of the data that you generate in your office. Let's turn this around a little bit. Can the biomarkers themselves help the clinicians recognize the important clinical phenotypes? Well, that's another key question. And in many fields of medicine, the answer to that is yes. In oncology, for example, there are a number of biomarkers that inform the selection of appropriate therapy. In breast cancer, for example, the presence of high expression of estrogen receptors or progesterone receptors strongly informs the choice of appropriate chemotherapy for that particular patient. That's a biomarker that informs treatment. In asthma, we're almost to that point. Is there a specific biomarker that we can measure that tells us that a particular drug is the proper treatment? No, we're not quite to that point yet. But my guess is that over the next 12 to 36 months, some of these biomarkers will actually come into the clinical arena. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD.com at XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Katen Sheth, and joining me to discuss clinical phenotypes in asthma, the importance of biomarkers, is Dr. William Calhoun, the Seeley and Smith Distinguished Chair of Internal Medicine and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. Dr. Calhoun, you've talked about exhaled nitric oxide. Do you think that's the best validated biomarker in 2008? In 2008, it probably is the best practical validated biomarker. As we talked a little bit ago, induced sputum, the measurement of eosinophils in induced sputum in particular, has very nice predictive value for a variety of very important asthma outcomes. However, it's not a technique that most of us as clinicians can get, and that's even in academic medical centers. So although induced sputum is reasonably well-validated and has good predictive value for a number of important asthma outcomes, it's not practical. So as a practical biomarker, exhaled nitric oxide probably rises to the top of the list. I'll ask you a loaded question here, and I know a lot of your research was in bronchialveolar lavage and its use as markers and finding that. Is that a good validated biomarker that helps us in research questions? Bronchoalveolar lavage is invasive, bronchoalveolar lavage is expensive, and bronchoalveolar lavage confers some risk to the volunteer or to the patient. And so as a biomarker, it fails the test of ease of use and it fails the test of low expense. What we've learned, however, from bronchoalveolar lavage is that the information in the airway can allow us to predict clinical phenotypes. And it is a testable hypothesis that other ways of getting samples of the airway, such as exhaled breath condensate, perhaps a simple sputum, not a hypertonic saline-induced sputum, but perhaps even a simple sputum, may give us the same kind of information. Those are future directions for biomedical research and biomarkers at this point. What we can learn from bronchoalveolar lavage is the pathogenic mechanisms. We can establish that there's biologic plausibility. And from the standpoint of the sample itself, it's a pretty clean sample. The next step, of course, and drawing that into the clinical arena is taking that information that we've obtained from bronchoalveolar lavage and moving it into a sample regime that is clinically applicable. And I think exhaled breath condensate is probably one of those samples that bears evaluation in that regard. Can you tell us a little bit more about exhaled breath condensate? Why do you think that's tying all of these together? At least that's what I thought I heard you say. Well, exhaled breath condensate in 2008 is not yet ready for prime time. But consider that exhaled air as it comes out through the vocal cords produces a micro-aerosolization of the fluids in the airway across the vocal cords from the trachea, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not just looking at condensed water coming out of the exhaled breath. We're actually looking at micro-aerosolization of materials from the upper airway. It's then not a logical leap to suggest that that material could have very important biological information. Exhaled breath condensates can be done in the course of about 10 minutes. They're essentially non-invasive. A patient simply breathes into a tube for a few minutes 
and the material collects in a sample tube and then it can be analyzed in the laboratory. So exhaled breath condensate has certain limitations, of course, but I think it does have the promise of having biologic plausibility, sampling the upper airway, being relatively quick, relatively inexpensive, and being non-invasive. Well, given your obvious expertise in using these biomarkers, what other things has your lab discovered in using biomarkers in the research that you've done? Well, using bronchoalveolar lavage, my colleagues and I at the University of Texas have found that the cytokine patterns in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid can define four different subsets of asthma. And we were encouraged to find that one of those subsets corresponded strongly to the severe asthma phenotype that we were studying in our NIH-funded severe asthma research program. What we didn't expect and were surprised to find and certainly is interesting for us to pursue is that those patients who had clinically indistinguishable mild to moderate asthma had three different molecular phenotypes. It is our postulate, our hypothesis, that those three molecular phenotypes have a different underlying pathogenesis, may have different responses to therapy, and in fact, may have a different trajectory. They may have a different pathway of loss of lung function over time. Those are all testable hypotheses that we're, at this point, evaluating. We've seen some recent data that there may be some genetic abnormalities that lead to some asthmatics exposed to smoking earlier. Does this play into this exact different type of clinical phenotype that we have to prevent exposure in certain people, those types of things? Yeah, absolutely. I think the role of genotyping in clinical medicine will only enlarge. Obviously, there are some concerns that are legitimately raised about the advent of genotyping and genetic information being rolled into your clinical medical record. But there are very good bioethicists who are working on this problem, and I think that the safeguards will be put in place to prevent the genetic information from being used inappropriately. Well, I'd like to thank my guest from the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, Dr. William Calhoun. Dr. Calhoun, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. My pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Sheff. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM160. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit ACAAI.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.